0: Hey, this is Jeremy Baer with the Freshman 15, and I am super excited about today's episode because this is an opportunity that we don't often have. But you may be familiar with a recent Netflix true crime documentary. And the name of the documentary is Why Did You Kill Me? And for a period of time, it was actually the top documentary on Netflix. A lot of people saw it. I saw it. A Riverside, California woman, Crystal Theobald, was shot and killed in 2006. A casualty of gang-related violence. The story follows the steps her family took to identify and bring to justice those responsible. Going so far as to use social media to attempt to lure the killer out of hiding. You have to watch it if you have not yet, and I will warn you, we're going to be talking about some spoiler-related stuff on this episode, so pause it, go watch it, come on back. But the reason I'm most excited is because with me today is the director of the doc, Fred Monk and this was his freshman film. This was a labor of love for many, many years. Fred, it's so great to have you, man. Um, thrilled to
1: be here, man. Thanks to have me, Jeremy.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Also joining me is one of the primary cinematographers on the project, Douglas Miller. In addition to being a close friend of mine, Doug has been my DP on the projects I've directed for the past five years, and uh, I've been trying to get him on the show for a long time, and so I finally found a way to do it. Doug, how you doing, brother?
2: Pretty good, you got me. I'm here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> at long last. Yeah. So, uh, man, I gotta tell you, I'm so thrilled about the success of this documentary, Why Did You Kill Me? And it's, it, it's such an, am- I mean, clearly it's a somber topic. And so, you know, I'm trying to watch my tone about how I talk about it. But at the same time, such an amazing, compelling story. So Fred, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna ask, I'm sure the question you get a lot. How in the world did this story come to you?
1: Yeah, it's been, this was a very long haul. This film took a long time to make. First heard about this story back in 2011. I was working for Roger and Julie Corman. You know, Roger Corman, for those who don't know, is kind of a B movie impresario, a legend of uh, low budget independent American filmmaking. All right. As they always are, and as they continue to be, they're always in the hunt for stories. And they wanted to do – at that time, they were kind of interested in getting into TV movies at places like Lifetime. And so I spent a lot of my time kind of looking through newspapers, trying to find stories that maybe fit this broadly, maybe in the true crime space, things that maybe had a female protagonist and we happen to have a, an intern who was from Riverside, California, which is, again, for those who don't know, it's like a city like 60 miles inland of Los Angeles. Her dad had heard about what she was doing and he just sent in this little newspaper clipping and he said, Hey, I think this sounds like it might be interesting, mm-hmm. you know, for the folks you're, you, for what you were describing that you're working on. And boy, was it ever interesting. It was, so it was 2011. It was, Uh, a newspaper article that had come out in connection with the sentencing of Coolia Heredia, who's kind of one of the main players um, or one of the main characters that we end up following in the film. It was a very short article, but it had this very unusual little section in it, which is, unusually for a case of this nature, the mother of the victim, Crystal Theobald. The mother was incredibly involved in the police investigation. She used the social networking site MySpace to help investigate the crime they included this little quotation, which is now basically the title of the film. They included that they explained a little bit of her involvement on MySpace. And they said that she her, the last thing she said to the person that she had kind of corresponded with most, most intimately and intensely was why did you kill me? Mm. That really struck me as just the strangest and most interesting thing I'd ever heard. And I was like, why did you kill me? And And it revealed too, in this article that this, the profile with, with which she was interacting with this person, who she believed was involved in her daughter's death, the profile actually bore her daughter's image, and so it was in some way, yeah. you know, immediately oh, it was clear as like, in some way that this is some kind of representation of her daughter, and it just really struck me funny. I'm just like, wow, this is incredibly intense, and there, there, it seems like there must be a bigger story here. There, this. If there's something. There's an incredibly rich paradox even in this one little phrase. Why did you kill me? How can someone who's dead ask a question? If you were the. If you were this mother, why would you create a profile with your daughter? It doesn't seem like the most efficacious way to go about this kind of scheme. There, there's clearly some kind of emotional element here, or something else. And so we back then we kind of reached out to um, the newspaper reporter, and then we were put in touch with Belinda. And very almost immediately, it was clear that indeed there was a much larger story. Yeah, kind of the rabbit hole ran far deeper than was indicated in this. You know, what is was just a day. You know, a day's work for a, a really great newspaper reporter named Richard Diatley in Riverside. And so that's kind of what got us going. It's amazing. Yeah, and then it took it took many years before it even became a documentary. It was originally developed as a kind of narrative project with the Cormans basically set to go as it would have been kind of a, uh, a narrative movie of the week. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then that never, that ended up that, that ended up not happening. I left, I I stopped working for them, but I always remembered this amazing story and it always stuck stuck in my head. And so a few years later, I kind of circled back. I knew that the Cormans had let the project go. And so I reached out to Belinda and I started talking to her and I said, Hey, you know, How's it going? Are you still interested in you know pursuing a film in some stripe or form? Yeah, and she said yeah, and it just seemed immediately like a doc might be a way more interesting thing to do than a lifetime movie of the week. So that's kind of how we got going. And and Doug, you know, Doug was a part of that process from the very beginning. Doug was on shoot zero. You know, he's like on the very first shoots. Wow, that was back in the days where we were. We didn't have much more than that initial instinct of, "Oh my God, this is a really amazing story. Let's do something." We don't know what it's going to be. We don't know what it's going to turn into, but let's start shooting and let's figure it out. And that was such a blessing because it let us it we it let us really explore this story over a course of years. And make discoveries and and learn things about Belinda that some of the you know the critical elements of the story we didn't even learn after we'd been shooting interviews with Belinda for two years.
0: Yeah, you
1: know, and that was one of the things that was really amazing. And and of course, y- you
0: can't help it as an audience. You look at the, the what's happening. And you think, well, there's no way that the the production crew, the director, saw that coming. That's a twist that they that you couldn't have seen early on, and so you're just you're having to deal with it in real time.
1: Absolutely, there are a couple moments. There's even one moment in that where you can hear my voice in the film. It's one of the moments where Belinda was talking about just how far she had gotten with her kind of her plan for revenge with this end of the world party. There was a day where she just kind of revealed to me the ex, the extent. Uh, of her plan. And you can hear my voice and I'm just like, you know, I, I was dumbfounded. I was totally Ooh. dumbfounded. And she knew that I was in the moment yeah. Um, because we had talked, you know, we'd been talking for years. I And I had known her for years even before we started shooting. That's it. So Doug, let me ask you, when when Fred came to you and said, I've got
0: this thing going on and it's, it has to do with, you know, there's murder and there's MySpace and all that. And, you know, uh, when you're having these initial discussions about what it might be, or I think, what's what's your reaction? How how did you what 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 was your sense of the kind of story that you thought you were going to be able to tell?
2: Well, I was interested in just the whole plot and the, the scope of where it happened because I myself lived in Riverside when I first got married, so I was familiar with the area, and I thought it would be a fun project. It didn't dawn on me the scope of what had really happened and Belinda's true demons until that first shoot and. We were setting up and she was talking to us and we were adjusting lensing and lighting and she kind of looked up and she just flat out said that she wishes they were dead. And if she could have it her way, she would kill them. And I was looking through the viewfinder at the time and I was focused in on her face and the reality of her, the seriousness of what she was saying hit me like a ton of bricks. And that's when I realized, okay, this is going to be different. And we're probably going to get stuff that's never going to make it to the dock. It's going to be on the ground, not used. It's going to be her true feelings then over the course of time in a way it's almost like she sort of it was kind of like therapy you know all these shoots that we did with her and kind of reopening old wounds and reinvestigating these moments and you know finding things out with her together she kind of opened up and then there was a sense of calming after a while like maybe like a couple of years later she was different than she was when we first started but that very first day was the eyebrow razor where you're like okay this is this is serious yeah yeah I was beside myself. I, I, I did not expect that level of anger and determination from somebody. Because we do docs all the time, corporate and non-corporate, and people say their spiel, and, you know, you, you, you go for what you think will work. This time we're letting someone just say how they feel, and there's no limits. Fred's just engaging in a conversation, so we're not saying you can or can't say anything. Yeah. And she took that opportunity and went all the way out. So yeah. it was it was pretty impressive
0: so fred like when you when you make the decision this is going to be a doc and and you start approaching it like a doc I, I imagine you can't help it you you're telling the story in your head you're thinking about the ending of the story is the doc what you had planned on or was this the story that was in your head or how how much did it veer off from what you thought it was going to be
1: yeah uh, you know the greatest thing about documentary filmmaking is that it humbles you in ways that you will never predict. You know, you always go into shoots with a question list and a plan. And oh, wouldn't it be great if I could get the person to connect these two ideas? Ah, oh, it, it would fit in perfectly in the edit there. Right. It all goes awry and you get none of the things you want. Um, and inevitably, everything that feels in the moment like it's total chaos and you don't know what to do with it, it ends up being far more interesting than what you planned. And so, and that is very broadly the, the case with this film. I think initially I was really drawn to the aspect of identity and performance on the internet. You know, I was a I was a gangly kid in high school when MySpace came out, and I was deeply suspicious and uncomfortable with social media from the jump. And I was kind of like, God, how do you use this? It's so strange. The amount of information that people are revealing. How should I use it? I I don't know. Um, and in this story it was immediately that was part it was that discomfort with social media i felt it was it somehow mirrored and exaggerated and twisted in an incredibly compelling way and that was what i thought initially was going to be really the core of the whole film was just the psychological dynamics of catfishing and yeah. what it was like to kind of you know to be in intimate correspondence with these people that Belinda believed were responsible for her daughter's death just the 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 absolute kind of this this the surreality and strangeness of that you know there's never really been a technology that would have previously would have allowed someone to do that in in real time in the way that she did and so that was what we th- kind of what I thought was really was I that's what I knew was compelling off the jump and then I mean things like the revenge plot. You know that was that was that just came in an interview. We we had no idea. Um, yeah, no idea. We had talked about that party before, and it had never. She had never actually fully framed it as this was the day I was going to kind of seek revenge in blood. And getting to know her and talking to her, as Doug was saying, too. One of the fascinating things and amazing things about Belinda as a subject is that she. You know, she's incredibly open and she's she's a very emotional person. Yeah. And so she could kind of really get in touch with a lot of the feelings from the the events of the story in, in a very present tense way, you know, re-experience, and that is kind of the nature of trauma right? is that, that you tend to go, you know, you, you re-experiencing it always as if it's almost happening in the moment. But what was also fascinating with her was through time we really got to see her positions and ideas evolving. And she was continuing to struggle and think about things that ended up becoming really major themes of the film, these ideas of, well, what, do, what is justice yeah. uh, for my daughter? Um, is it revenge? Or is it something that is sought through the criminal justice system? Um, what does peace for me, what would it look like? So all that, that stuff kind of You know, that happened in front of our eyes. It's one of the, again, it's one of the beautiful things about making a doc over a long period of time is that time becomes a real factor. Yeah. And then lastly, when we started uh, making this film in 2014, there was one defendant who was still outstanding, um, William Sotelo, uh, who is, you know, kind of a critical character in the film. He, was in the wind. And we were told, we we have the tape, Doug shot a lot of it. We were told in interviews that William Sotelo was dead, that he had been murdered by members of his own gang. Mm -hmm. We were told in interviews by people, they were hypothesizing that he was in the witness protection program. Um, And other people just told us that he had disappeared and that he would never, ever be found. And so that was kind of our working assumption was that probably you know we wouldn't we wouldn't ever have an end to William's story we wouldn't know what happened to him and then in 2016 we'd already been filming for two years he was uh, captured and and in Mexico and he was extradited which began a whole legal process that only wrapped up in 2020 so none of that you know none of that we anticipated and it just all happened because we made this thing over such a darn long period of time
0: yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, it's interesting you bring up Belinda. I mean, Belinda is the first thing that every person that I, that I talked to who's, who's seen the doc, everyone wants to talk about Belinda. And it, it, she's such an interesting and compelling character because you can't help it. Of course you feel for her and your, your heart breaks when she talks. And there were, there was a, a part of me as I was watching the doc thinking, there must be some inkling that you have of how she's coming across when she's saying some of the things. I mean, you know, it's clear that there's some moments she's not being entirely truthful and forthcoming and, you know, particularly early on. What do you see your role as when you're in these discussions, you know, and you're having to play your cards kind of close to the vest and like, OK, well, I obviously you just want to let her talk. But are you struggling at all with, you know, with what to say and how to say it? And how is that making you feel?
1: yeah i I never really struggled with um believing her in, in any given moment mm-hmm. um more so for me, it was just about engaging with an honest uh you know engaging in an honest conversation and being curious and and listening to what she was saying you know with with subject matter this sensitive and this difficult you, you don't ever e- expect or, or push for people to to tell you everything or to be totally forthcoming. It's a very gentle you want to be as gentle as you can, and you want to give them the space to, when they're comfortable, tell you what they want to tell you. And so I was never—I never felt like I was strategizing or pushing her. And, and in truth, too, Belinda's—she was very forthcoming. You know, there was never there was never a time where we, you know, it was like down to brass tacks and trying to play hardball. You know, no, it was—we would have these conversations and she was always very disclosing and very forthcoming i think it's one of the things that's ultimately quite winning about her is that you know in addition to being very emotional and to, in moments kind of being really carried carried on that emotion to do things or to say things um that she might not otherwise she also is very reflective and she can look at herself with a great deal of of kind of distance and remove and so she she's very self aware. She knows how people I think perceive her, and you know I think we we all always talked about it and we always knew that Belinda's a complicated person. She's not simple, but that's what really makes her interesting. You know, she's yeah. not maybe she's not exactly who you might imagine as the v- the victim in a true crime story. Right. But that's what's great about her. Yeah. You know, even a lot of true crime stories, it's not. it's rare that you even have a female protagonist who's kind of the one who's at the center of the action. And again, she kind of, you know, subverts one's expectations there too. And again, that's what's really interesting about her, I think, is that she is not... She's not a cliche at all. She's, you know, she's kind of a, a unique, singular person and character.
2: She, she was very sweet. She was very motherly. So you'd come in there. She'd ask us if we were hungry. She'd have things mm. ready. Were we thirsty? And there would be the usual banter as we set up. And, you know, she would be like this mom type figure for all of us. And then when we sat down and started talking, then she would sort of like a chameleon. She would kind of show her true colors and open up how she really felt. And so she would transition on camera. So much so that actually uh, I kind of learned early on to start rolling before we're supposed to be rolling. Right. And uh, there were a lot of moments there where, you know, she's doing her thing. And sure enough, she kind of deviates and lets some of those nuggets out (laughs) early on and then just kind of reels them back in and then keeps on going.
0: Yeah. and, And having worked with you for years, Doug, and this is something you and I talk about a lot, which is the 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 power of of emotional cinematography as opposed to just like informational cinematography, and that's definitely one thing that you're you know it's in your wheelhouse. It's why you're as good as you are. What you do, what it, just on a purely like mechanical level, what kinds of decisions are you making as a cinematographer to make sure that Belinda is coming across with the nuance that you want. And uh, and the story overall is is coming across with the the power and the nuance and the complexity. What what uh, even just technically, what what how does that affect the the choices you're making?
2: Well, honestly, I try to to draw the line to help her feel like we're almost invisible, and I try to scan her body language. I mean, all these years of doing interviews and docs, you you get a feel for the human aspect of of, of how they portray their emotions on their face and when water floods in their eyes or they 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 get flush or maybe there's a twitch or two everybody kind of has some sort of a visible twitch that they will do when they're nervous you know and over time you kind of start to categorize these in bends that are pretty common and so typically you're we're taught you know when as the emotion grows you you creep in on the lens and you're trying to get the audience to lean in more to the to the to the screen and you want them to, to hone in on what's about to happen. It, are they going to go to the emotional side and cry? Or are they going to burst? Um, so you know that going into it. But there's these other subtle moments that happen too where they're self-realizing what they're saying in that moment. Like they're saying something that maybe it's the first time they've actually verbalized it. And the reaction to hearing themselves say that on their face, you can see it building. And so I try to find those moments so that Maybe there's a question that there's a couple seconds before they're answering and it's that dead space between the the answer and the question that you see the change in their face that makes that dramatic moment. Yeah, And those are the things I try to look for to help it, you know, help the story yeah. go even further.
0: Yeah, you know, I and, and people uh, not to brag on you too much, but, you know, I, there's there's certain things that like a great DP is going to do that I know that you do. And that sort of shallow depth, for example, that brings you into this intimacy with the people that you're talking with. And and you're the kind of cinematographer that's actually going to ride that focus, even as the person is making subtle moves so that you can keep that intimacy there, keeping that focus depth, you know, right there on the eyeball as opposed to like the tip of the nose or something. And it grabs you and it does the thing that it's that it's going to do. And it's just it's a it's a level of craft that people don't think about, but they feel it
2: well you both you both can you both know this I'm always looking for the maximum space to be able to blur the best and for me it's about creating that bokeh effect those pretty orbs and making it feel larger than life and more cinematic and and there were many a times where we went to these different homes and I'm trying to find the best you know corner to to, to shive us all into so we can get that long you know depth to be able to create that look and there were there were a lot of moments where, like, how long do I have to to make this look good, you know? And you have to compromise in between, like, the time to get going and the time to set it up. So, and not to mention this particular doc, there, we were going through the, the the spectrum of the transition from HD to 4K. So, those early days were like the DSLR days and the you know the the old school cameras, and then we migrated into 4K as we got closer to the latter years, and Netflix took over. So, you have more you know functions in these newer cameras to help you make that look more cinematic than you did in the beginning. So really, it's all about your eye and how far back you can get. And I know I probably was a pain in the butt to both of you <laughs> many times. So apologies for before.
1: <laughs> no, and and just to add on to what Doug's saying too, I think he's, he's alluded to it. One of the keys and one of the real constraints that you deal we dealt with with this project was we had all sorts of limitations. We had limitations of budget we had limitations of time, you know, initially Doug didn't get a paycheck for many, many years on this project. Uh, none of us did. And so that meant sometimes we'd have to, we would stack interviews. you know, we'd shoot maybe one day every four months or something mm-hmm. like that when we when all of our schedules aligned. And that meant that sometimes we'd have to stack four interviews one on top of the other. People are can be a little bit skittish about showing up or they don't want to sit for very long. And so there's a whole element of just right the practicality, Doug, saying of like oftentimes we had to shoot fast. Mm. You know, one of my favorite interviews, for example, is that Doug shot is uh, Robbie. You know, one of Belinda's eldest son. um, He's sitting in a car. He, you know, he's talking about events that took place while he was also in a car. But that was that wasn't really necessarily fully planned. We had talked we had talked about that day that he happened to be. At a court hearing that day for his, you know, for for his sister's case, and we knew we might have fifteen minutes with him. Yeah, Yeah. and so we knew, okay, we can't take him to another location. We have to shoot this in a car that's literally sixty feet from the entrance to the courthouse. And Doug, it's it's like Doug had shot a hearing, and we're like, we don't even have time to change lenses. Like you need to, we need to get this going because. The, cons- the the kind of journalistic constraints and the constraints of schedule were so intense that we just had to do it and shoot it. And that, you know, that is, it becomes an aesthetic in a way you know, you, you keep things simple and we were telling a story about Riverside that was largely shot in homes in Riverside. And so that was, right. you know, there wasn't, it was, it was perfectly, I think, useful for us to lean into that to be like, Hey, this is a naturalistic environment. We're in someone's home. And then the other thing that I think is so critical and Doug can talk to this too, is that, And this wasn't even our plan, per se. This wasn't necessarily a conscious thought. But part of the constraints meant that we had a very small crew and we had incredible continuity. So Doug, you know, Belinda didn't ever didn't meet another DP for years on this project. It was always Doug. Mm. And sometimes it would literally just be Doug and I. Like, I would be on a camera. Doug would be on on the A-cam and recording sound. And again, for when you're dealing with really sensitive, difficult subject matter, creating int- intimacy, not just with your image, but also literal intimacy with your subject and just having it, you know, not having people in her sightline, not having people she doesn't know, having, you know, letting her kind of get to know us and trust us and keeping things really casual over time. That was huge. I don't think we would have gotten half the things we got had we not done that over a course of years. I mean, there are there are bites in that, in the film it, you know, you may, you don't know it because of editing, but it's like, sometimes Doug would say something like someone would be struggling for a word and it, you just hear Doug would call out like, Oh, you mean uh, <laughs> casket. There's an example I'm thinking of it. and they'd be like, Oh yeah, thanks Doug. And then they would, you know, they would keep going, but it was only because they, they got to know us and they felt comfortable with us. And so that, that, that's really huge. And that really informed a lot of our process too.
2: Yeah. yeah, we we had to engage. I mean, we can't just show up and be the news crew, Channel 7 news crew. We had to be part of the family. And there were times where we were outside, you know, with Ben and Belinda just talking about other stuff, you know, barbecues or the kids, you know, uh, places to go uh, vacation just like you would normally do with friends and family and we had to open that up so that there was that trust there and we meant it like we weren't going to portray them in a way they that we did, they didn't want to be we wanted to make sure that what they were saying was was gold and going to be true and we we really tried and um you know we we were we made sure we were there early and made sure that we hung out a little bit afterwards and we always
1: ate, we always ate lunch with them yeah. like it wasn't like a crew you know a crew and a cast or you know it's like no everything was done together yeah what I'm feeling. And I think it comes across in the final product of
0: the doc. There's a sincerity to, to the approach to the whole thing. And there's, and I, you know, I can even hear underneath your words, there's this open heartedness to the whole thing where, uh, you know, uh, uh, on our podcast, we've, we've talked in the past about capturing the Freedman's that doc. Love that doc. Amazing. And it's a doc that wouldn't have happened if the director hadn't decided to just, be open to just completely changing course you you have to be as as a documentarian uh which is amazing so fred how did you evolve as a director beginning to end i mean this is your this is your first one it's your freshman film clearly you're a different guy than when you started not just because it's been a long time but but uh, you had to have had a, your own metamorphosis.
1: I think I did. Yeah, I think it's funny to think that this movie just came out this year. I'm 33 years old now. It was a movie that I thought first thought about making when I was 23. Mm. It, yes, I think many things changed, and kind of our, our resources and our situation changed a lot. In the beginning, there are literal there are shots, and there's even one scene which I won't even. I'll, I'll let people guess. There's one scene that's technically speaking not even full HD. Um, that's in the film. And it's an amazing scene and Doug shot it beautifully. And I don't think you'd ever necessarily know, you know, and then by the end, we were shooting, obviously, 4k with with great cameras. And we were able to build this kind of extraordinary miniature. I think for me, you know, a lot of it was there is this big question of resources. And then too, there there is just there is something that comes with interviewing a lot of people about highly traumatic subject matter. I'm not a trained therapist. It Took some time. It, 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 you know, there's a kind of manner that you develop, I think, through time, and um, I think to some extent, I'm just the kind of person who likes to listen to people, and I'll sit and listen to yeah. anyone talk, and that's just part of who I've I am and always have been. But if I think about my own evolution, that was definitely one of the things that I became. You, you become increasingly aware of the kind of the precariousness, and also some of the the hazards of interviewing people about really, really traumatic subject matter because there's really almost no way to do it that that isn't in some way also traumatic you begin you can it's very p- easy for people to slip back into a kind of re-traumatization or to or to, to engage with things in a very raw and and powerful way that is not to be taken lightly so that was definitely mm-hmm. one of the things that that might where my thinking changed through the years Part of it is that just when you, when someone agrees to sit down in a chair across from you and talk about incredibly difficult things that have happened to them, things that oftentimes they don't talk about with anyone, you know, you immediately feel an incredible connection with them—a cynicism dissolving connection. I think it's it's hard to be cynical once someone does something that generous with you. You
0: have to respond. So tell me about this 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 miniature model. I mean, this is the the thing that, I mean, I'm gonna say maybe aside from Belinda, this is the, you know, people think of this doc, it, it really, it, it has this whole aesthetic character to
1: it. How did this, How where did this idea come from? How did this thing grow? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, from day one, we knew that we were gonna have this challenge of, of representing the shooting, uh, the, which is the inciting incident of the entire film. And, it, we knew that it was really complicated spatially. One of the first days of shooting we did, and that Doug did, we went back to the street and we walked the street with Belinda and we had her kind of pointing things out and telling us oh, this car was here, it moved here. And uh, that scene was actually amazing and it was really great. And uh, we cut versions of it. We cut versions of it with the model ultimately. But it was clear that we needed something extra. You know, you couldn't just rely on people talking i personally find recreations and docs to be a little i'm just a little tired of them and 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 i and i was interested in trying something else in an interview uh that we did early on belinda said something that really stuck with me which is she said when i think about that night i see it from above wow so that line always stuck with me and i was i was literally like walking into like a rouse in Culver city or something and it just like the thought popped into my head is like oh Maybe we could try to literalize that statement from Belinda when I think about the night I see it from above, and that kind of led to this idea of building uh, a miniature, which was one of the most fun um, parts of the entire project. And it, you know, further it had, there were a lot of resonances immediately too that were that made it seem like it would work. I mean, it, part of it is it's a, it was a way to represent subjective memory. So it's like, yeah. you know, this is Belinda. She's moving the pieces around. It is her version of what happened. Right. We actually had plans and we shot other people doing what she does in the film because oh. we almost had this kind of ra- idea to do a Rashomon-like thing where we, had, we would have different right. takes on, on exactly what had happened. But nevertheless, that was really appealing, this idea that you could create a space that felt a little less literal, that felt something more like a, somewhere between a memory and a nightmare, yeah. Um, which is of course another word that she would often use to describe that night. And then lastly, too, once we kind of had understood just how far Belinda's ideas of revenge had gone, you know, it just made sense. There's some there's some there's a, there's a theory of revenge, which is basically that it is revenge is a restaging restaging of the wrong or the inciting trauma that was um, visited upon you. And so and in in some ways Belinda was this figure who was manipulating the pieces on the board and she was taking the pieces and she was re restaging what happened on the night of her daughter's death except she was going to reform the event so that she had control wow. and she was going to revert, you know, reverse the outcome, um, and re- kind of rewrite history in her own way. Yeah, And so that was always like part of the appeal of the miniatures. like, well, that kind of, it all kind of all lines up. And I just, you know, I love miniatures. And so, yeah. uh, that was one of the lucky things that we were able to do with Netflix's support.
0: So, so amazing. Uh, I, it just, I, I the feeling that I got, and again, I don't want to overread, but, just I, I got the feeling that when you're the victim of something this horrible, you will you I, I would imagine that you feel like the universe is toying with you in a way or you're you're being you're at the mercy of these forces that are so completely out of your control and to have that sort of swapped and reverse and to have Belinda be the character in that scene. I mean for me that was that was kind of the genius stroke of it wasn't just the miniature itself but the fact that Belinda's looming over the whole thing that that it just seemed like the that that was the chef's kiss of the of the whole thing for me.
1: Oh thank you. Yeah. No, you're so right. That idea of powerlessness versus control it's a huge theme in the film and and really, it's when Be- when Belinda and Jamie kind of get on MySpace. It's it's this surge of power and in, in a sea of powerlessness that they've kind of felt, you know it's it is a hook into some version of ultimately getting control. And so yeah, you're totally right.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's amazing too. I mean, beginning this whole thing in you said 2011, right? Over the course of the last ten years, even the the level of consciousness for documentaries has completely evolved. And so I that's it, it was it it just seemed like it had to be this kind of confluence of of events. You know, you mentioned uh, the court case sort of reaching its climax last year in 2020, and all this. It just it was kind of this perfect storm of a lot of things coming together. I would have to think.
1: We got pretty darn lucky. I think, yeah, I think you have to get lucky for a what was for most of its existence a no-budget film to end its kind of to end its life as a Netflix original. It was it, we were incredibly lucky when we started filming. I don't think the phrase Netflix original even no was it existed. Right? It was like maybe House right. of Cards had come out, but like the idea that documentaries would yeah. be Netflix original. You know, this didn't this yeah you know, none of that was the case and the kind of cottage industry that is true crime did not exist in the same way that it does today. Um, and all those things were kind of critical ultimately, I think in us getting the support and, you know, getting the funding um, in the end. So yeah, yeah, we got, we got pretty darn lucky.
0: It's a, it's just a, it's amazing. And, and you know, and what a time we live in. My wife tells people she's a murderino, which I don't think was a thing, you know, five years ago, but this is, it's, it's a thing that's in the consciousness. Like people want to, people want to know about these stories and they want to they want to dig into. And, you know, yeah, maybe some of it is a little bit, I don't know, a, a little over grand or something. But but there's a heart beating underneath these stories that I mean, it's just amazing that you're able to tell the kind of story you were able to tell. Let me ask you this. And this is something I'm always curious about with documentaries. And I'm thrilled that I'm, I'm actually able to ask you this question. What's a storyline that You had to cut out of the film Mm. that you wanted to be in there, that you, you you just, you just couldn't make it work for whatever
1: reason. It's a great question. There are many, many storylines and scenes that we, that did not make the final cut. You know, amongst other things, we had probably upwards of 60 hours of um, recordings from the Riverside police department, expanding the whole course of this investigation. Some of those scenes were just incredibly moving. There's, you know, Documentary, you know, and even with, and with someone really skilled like Doug, things can feel very, very real. But ultimately, nothing feels quite as real as you know an unfolding police interview. Uh, you know, and, and some of those moments were incredibly moving. And we had scenes. You know, there were scenes where their um, Julio's brother Joey was being interrogated, and the detectives were pitting the brothers again, trying to kind of pit the brothers against each other. You know, that was incredibly moving um, and unforgettable. There were just times during inter- some of these audio interviews where some of uh, one of the Lemus brothers kind of broke down just recalling Crystal's face. And what he he wasn't sure if it was what he remembered from the night of the shooting, if it was kind of um, so, a kind of nightmarish projection of his own imagination. Yeah. So that comes to mind. Yeah, there was a point where we, um, and I think Doug saw this cut, where the character of Manuel Lemus was actually. We started the film with him, and he was kind of. He was a character that was kind of much more present through the from the beginning of the film. That's definitely one thing that I think about a lot. Um, Manuel was, you know, he's one of our. He's a very, very unique character, very eloquent, and there was a, there was a version of this film that started with a kind of, an almost philosophical monologue from him. About how he viewed these events and how um, he had grown up in a kind of in a very religious family, and he had uh, instinctively pushed pushed against um, some of that religiosity, some of the kind of the, the pressure to be a quote unquote good boy, and he had this very haunting monologue about how he thought that some of his some of the bad things that he had done in his life were a way of kind of testing God. And that the events oh, wow. of the story were, in some ways, God answering back. Um, mm-hmm. So that's one scene that definitely comes to mind. But there, there are so, so, so many. Um, we, shot, we shot a ton, a ton of stuff that um, didn't make the final cut.
0: Yeah. question for both of you, actually. I mean, you're, you're dealing with some, some real characters here. And you've got some people in front of the camera that are, you know, <laughs> were there moments that you were sort of, Looking around and looking over your shoulder and thinking, "Is this cool? I mean, am I am I in like dangerous waters
1: here?" Yeah, it's a great question, and Doug can talk to this too because I think even just sometimes in the, the, in some ways, the getting the B roll was oftentimes the was some of the more tricky stuff that we ended up doing because you 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 parachute into someone's neighborhood with a camera, you hop out of a car with a camera, you get, grab a shot, and it's that can be very. Uh, jarring for people, and I think they understand. You understandably arouse their curiosity, um, mm. but just in terms of s- some of the other folks, the answer is not really. Uh, um, I think that there were certainly many people that didn't speak to us. That you know, that did we that didn't want to sit for interviews, and I think in part that's just born out of a um, a very kind of understandable, uncommonly held understanding that you know, generally one shouldn't talk about gangs or crimes uh it can just lead to bad things i think in the case of yeah. this story all the people that we interviewed they kind of they were very aware of what we were doing and, and and you know what the film might be in the end and i think that they felt comfortable um you know it it's it's a it, this is a story that in many ways everyone acknowledges that what happened uh was immensely tragic And that it was not the intended outcome of whatever, you know, had happened, whatever was set to happen that night. And Mm -hmm. so folks were really kind of generally speaking understanding. And I think, you know, they all someone like, say, Mario, you know, he has a much better understanding of, say, that the people connected to the 5150 gang or people connected to his family and his community. He's much better understanding than we do. And I think you know he he understood it well enough to feel comfortable um, to do an interview. So yeah. really, no, we didn't. It, that was not a major struggle.
2: I, I will I will chime in though and say that Detective Rick Wheeler should be his own show. <laughs> when we were interviewing him and trying to follow him around for the day, he was one of those guys like the old Hunter back in the '80s. <laughs> he he was a very uh, unique individual, very well kept on camera. Very, you know, politically correct, and then as soon as we get outside, you know, the jacket comes off, and he wants to get into it and go get a Mexican food at some drive-through and go on a stakeout. I don't know that that guy for me when we were when we were shooting was fun because he just I just felt like he had a whole another life that was just waiting to be told.
1: Oh my god, and he he's one of these people who has a steel trap mind. So you you drive through Riverside, and he's like, oh yeah, that corner. Um, 2006, you know, January, I, you know, ran into someone and we, this happened, you know, he's got, he's got, <laughs> yeah. you drive through the city yeah. with him and it's just uh, jaw-dropping story after jaw-dropping story. Non-stop. Yeah.
2: Every street does he has got something to say.
1: Yeah. yeah and, and, you know, his, fu- his function in the film is to some extent to be, um, he, he's an explainer and he does a great job, I think, of taking a lot of Oftentimes, complicated information and kind of synthesizing it or, or explaining it in a way that an, that an audience can understand. Yeah, Jeremy, you mentioned too that your your wife is a big true crime fan, right? And there, you know, one of the things that I think is really tricky about a film like this and the genre in general is, you know, t- true crime is is complicated. I think there's 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 a lot of kind of moral hazard that comes with consuming what are almost universally very tragic stories as entertainment and how they might inform right. people's ideas of, say, the level of criminality in the United States, or, or, or yeah. you know, and be it ultimately be politicized in, in these ways. It was really important for, to us um, in the filmmaking to, you know, we knew that we had a story that was going to be popularly appealing because of some of its very kind of classic true crime elements. Sure. And we were willing to engage, I think, engage with a lot of those tropes, but Kind of the experiment or the mission of the film was was to hopefully ultimately use some of those tropes to to then subvert some of the kind of the the cliches or the standard notions that are often communicated in the genre. Um, so that goes for everything from the fact that you know Detective Wheeler defines the gang early on, defines the fifty one fifty gang early on in the film, and then immediately following him, Mario gives a totally different definition of what this organization was to him and how he experienced it, which was much more so like, no, this is me and my yeah. cousins and our friends. And we had to do this because we were, you know, young kids. We were basically a bunch of young males around a certain age. And in this community that we're from, like you kind of have to s- stick up and, and defend each other.
0: Yeah. So and you, you touched on this a little bit, Fred, and I, and I'm sorry, I got, a, I got a, I got a prod. I, I have to know clearly you're a very, sincere, sensitive, open guy, uh, then you have to be to make something like this. Was that ever a struggle for you? The idea of like how the audience might be taking some of the things that you're presenting, like, you know, this woman has fed you and you know, is this, is this sensationalizing something or? Sure.
1: It's, it's, I think it's always a struggle. Um, you're aware that ultimately on some level, um, a film like this is, is commercial product and that it will kind of be put out into the world in that regard. I, I think for this film and for true crime in general, I, you know, I think it can be a really helpful social tool because people like to watch these things. And so if your mission is from the beginning, okay, let's use the kind of the popularity of this genre, which is, you know, it's, it's a genre of mass communication. It's a way of reaching a lot of people. If we use some of the, the, the kind of the tropes or the language of the genre to ultimately Give people maybe a little bit more than they bargained for, and to really, in a story like this, just always rigorously try to stick to: we're going to present the humanity of every person involved in this story. We're not going to essentialize. We're not. We're going to not going to simplify, or we're going to try our best not to. Of course, you know, the, yeah. the tough stuff of doc film is it's eighty minutes. You can only give just a glimpse, but we really worked our hardest to try to preserve that sense of kind of universal humanity. And hopefully that was one of the things that we did that kind of clawed back against maybe some of, you know, simpler versions of storytelling in the genre. Uh,
0: I, and I, I think you succeeded. Um, you know, only a couple other things before before we wrap up. Doug, I wanted to ask you, you, you and I have this conversation a lot about, you know, the shorthand between a director and a DP and the relationship and how that you're not going to have the same interaction on the first shoot as the hundredth shoot So this thing has been going for 10 years strong. Tell me about the relationship between you and Fred, like, how does it work? I mean, over time you're developing that shorthand, I guess, but four months between shoots sometimes, like how was your interaction?
2: I mean, it just came back immediately. It's like when you're really close with somebody and then you go on, you know, a two year, whatever, you know, corporate job, far away, come back and you're, you're just back to where you were before. It didn't feel like any time in between and i could read sort of his body language too and know when he would lean in and kind of tilt his head a little bit and i could kind of tell he's looking to the left to signify get the camera rolling and so we would and um and just a note to follow like as i mentioned before fred is kind of like you he's he's very conversational in his interviews so knowing that you want to put yourself in the back so that this this play can kind of orchestrate itself and and go on without you having to interrupt it so Knowing that your your cards have to be full, batteries full. You don't want any kind of technical issues, so that Fred has the the, the ability to you know keep going and explore an avenue that maybe all of a sudden comes up at the you know eleventh hour, and having that freedom to give him, you know, is is what I was trying to do most of the time. Um, because Belinda was a wild card, you didn't know where she was going to take you. Sometimes her conversations we had were short, and you know they were to the point. And then there'd be other days where she was sort of feeling, you know, a little bit of the the anger, so to speak, and she wanted to vent. And those were the days that Fred would engage in a full-on, you know, conversation, almost uh, therapy-type session, if you will. Uh, and I think it helped, honestly. You, know, you could tell by that towards the end there. She was definitely changing. She was, you know, she looked better. Um, she was more expressive. She was... She had more happier moments, you know, less of the colder moments. So just being able to follow and let him take the lead, I think is what I learned because that way the gold comes out, you know, you're not having to force it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We definitely always just tried to keep it as seamless as possible. And, you know, Doug needs to change the battery. He's whispering in my ear and then he's, cha- and I'm, I'll just start talking to Blinda. you know, I'm not, I'm not going to, we, sometimes we wouldn't even say cut. We're just keep it going, keep it going. Um, mm-hmm. One of the other things that we should we got a shout out to is Jordan Johnson, who is uh, a dear friend of mine and a producer on the film, along with Doug kind of the, 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 the one of the first people who was working on this film and who you know who worked on it all the way through. But Jordan had actually interned for Doug and it was it was really close with Doug. and I was really close with Jordan. So immediately there was kind of shared comfort and mutual friendship amongst all of us, which was just like a really fun. Um, it was a really fun element in the whole thing. And like, whenever we got together, it's kind of like a mini reunion, um, uh, you know, getting to hang out with, uh, with your friends for an afternoon.
2: Yeah. You look forward to it, you know, it, we made it fun and we kind of extended our friendship to them and, you know, it was like a family environment. So being able to, for the three of us to get together and to hang was kind of what this was about. And then of course, following the, the story.
0: I mean that's 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 I mean, the, the, the journey of the film, the making of the film is it sounds like it was a, a a transformational thing. So I have to do it. I've got to ask. I know it's the least favorite question, but what now? What's next? What do you got? What have you got going on?
1: I mean, clearly a successful doc under your belt. What what's on the horizon? I have no idea. Um, <laughs> it took us a lot to get this one across the line, and so it's been a pretty singular focus for a while. I have a bunch of projects I've been dreaming about and thinking about, but I uh, truly do not know what is next.
0: Taking a little time. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing there, you know, with a successful doc, I'm, I'm guessing if it hasn't already happened, there's soon to be an offer or two on the table. But I can tell you, I'm excited to see the next thing you do, Fred, because this was an amazing piece of artwork.
1: Oh, that's very kind of you. Thank you.
0: Of course. And Doug, uh, I, I, I know you're making some... Uh, short docs and commercials with me but uh anything else you want to reveal to the uh the listenership
2: uh just keeping it going i mean this is an art form I, this is how i express myself like a painter or
0: yeah.
2: an illustrator so the more we can film the more happier i am
0: yeah <laughs> well um the pride that you both take in your work and the artistry behind it and the the, the heart behind it was apparent to me in in every frame i I didn't look at it like your typical true crime documentary. It felt like something a little different and a little more interesting and maybe a little more complex or something. Am, you know, and maybe I'm just not seeing that in, in a lot of the other docs I see. But I was really, really thrilled to, uh, to have this experience. Also uh, thrilled to have the experience
1: of having you both on. This has been fantastic.
0: Thank you so much for doing this.
1: Thanks for having us, Jeremy. It was, it was, uh, it was really fun. Um, like we said, I, you, we, I'm used to seeing Doug and shooting with him every so often, and now that the project's done, I don't get to see him, so this was a a nice treat. Yeah. Well, thank you, Fred. Thank you, Doug, so much. As always, if you'd
0: like to contact us at the Freshman 15, you can contact us through Facebook, through Instagram, of course. If you'd like to email, our email address is freshman15film at gmail.com. That's freshman15film at gmail.com. Uh, Once again, super excited to have Fred and Doug, and uh, we look forward to whatever project you both are, are going to be working on next. Excellent. Thanks very much. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon.